You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver and I, Niels Kastel-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Rich last week, where we discussed the March Madness uh, that we just experienced, as well as how the design of trend-following strategies allow it to be, quote-unquote, prepared for unforeseen events without overcomplicating the investment process. Also, if you missed the Wednesday episode, I would encourage you to listen to that one. It was a thought-provoking conversation with Barry Eichengreen, professor of economic and political science at the University of California, about what we can learn from economic history in the current volatile global macro environment. And lastly, of course, I'm excited to invite you to enjoy the CTA miniseries where Alan and I have had the privilege of speaking with many of the decision makers of most of the largest CTAs in the world. And we dive deep into the most pressing topics and have gained unprecedented access to these industry leaders who share some exceptional insights really to the CTA world. So head over and check it out after you've done listening to Rob and me today. Rob, it is great to have you back this week. So much continues to happen in uh, in between our episodes. In fact, the last time we spoke, I just looked it up, was March 9th, which turned out to be an interesting weekend for the US banking system. But anyway, how are you doing, my friend? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I, I, I made the, think I made the cardinal mistake of boasting about my performance at, at that um, that particular podcast. In fact, it was funny. I was I was speaking at a conference at a French bank uh, last week, and uh, I put up some slides that I prepared before March the ninth. Um, and obviously, there <laughs> was a kind of I said I had to say, well, you know, after the end of this graph, things change slightly, but but this, the overall message is still the same. Um, and yeah, there were some people at the conference from. Um, a certain Swiss bank that is is no more, uh, shall we say? And uh, so, yeah, there was a, there was a few kind of awkward conversations going on in, in the corridors at that uh, particular conference. I can tell you, absolutely, there was a certain Swiss bank that got rebranded. Let's put it that way. All right, good to hear. We do have um, a great lineup uh, of questions and topics, which, of course, I say every week, but I actually really mean it. So, uh, but before we head over to that, let me do a quick uh, market wrap. It's obviously been a, a shortened week, but investors uh, did experience a little bit of a roller coaster ride this week. Interest rates continuing to trend lower in the face of mixed economic data. At the start of the week, the manufacturing and service surveys both came in weaker than expected, leading some to fear that the U.S. was heading towards a recessionary environment. And this fear was compounded by weaker than expected readings in factory orders and durable goods. However, the back half of the week brought some good news as the U.S. employment situation remained strong with March figures close to expectations. And while wages were a touch softer year on year, this was largely due to a payroll mix and reflects the fact that lower wage jobs are being added at the faster rate uh, than higher wage jobs. Anyway, another bright spot in this week's data was the strong Q1 year-on-year sales again in the U.S. auto sector 
and that was up 8% thanks to increased supplies and steady prices. And while interest rates did rise slightly on Friday after the employment release, the rates market remained significantly lower than it was a month ago, as we just talked about here. The question in everybody's minds, of course, now is whether the crisis is truly behind us or if it is yet to manifest, its, it manifest itself in the real economy. Really struggling with my words this morning, but anyway, Rob, I'm sure we'll get through it. Next week, by the way, we have some uh, inflation data coming out, I think on the 12th, and we have some financial sector earnings coming out on the 13th. So no doubt another interesting week. But anyway, let's talk about what's been standing out uh, for you, Rob, since you were last on the show. As mentioned, lots of things has happened since then, and especially in a place called Silicon Valley. I was wondering, you know, whether we should be concerned when you have some a place like that that consists of two words, namely silly and con, and then <laughs> everything else happens from there. Anyways, that's a bad joke on a Easter Saturday. How are you doing? <laughs> what has been standing out for you, Rob? Yeah, it's been an interesting few weeks. Uh, actually, another little anecdote. I was teaching um, last week and um, the the lady who was lecturing before me came up to me and said, "What do you? What is it you actually teach?" I said, "Oh, finance." Not wanting to get into detail, she said, "Oh, is Deutsche Bank safe?" And I thought, I said, "You know, if Deutsche Bank goes, then <laughs> we've got real problems." I said, you, "As a depositor, your money's probably fine. I'm sure you'll be fine." Um, but yes, uh, obviously, it's really very much been a, a year of, well, three thirds, I suppose, is the most accurate way of putting it. So. Um, the first, the first third was uh, the the period up till when, uh, you know, I was talking to you guys. March the 9th, March the tenth was okay, I think. Um, and then obviously, a horrendous few days happened. And actually, ignoring that, the last, the next few, <laughs> few weeks have been okay. Actually, I'm actually up slightly since since my low. Um, but yeah, so I, I personally lost actually around seven 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 and a half percent on that on that particular weekend, which. Um, I think he's slightly better than average looking at looking at kind of across the industry at other funds. But anyway, um, where does that leave me for the year? Well, for, for the year, that leaves me down, unfortunately, um, about two and a half percent. I'm sorry, about two two point nine percent, actually. So nearly three percent. Biggest losses. No surprise to hear there's a lot of bonds in that particular bucket. So US 20 years, uh, German 10 year bonds. US five years all making an appearance there. So obviously these are all positions where I was short bonds and, and got got trashed when uh, the market rallied on the back of that uh, banking news in the US. Not all bad though. Some some positive uh, performance. Interestingly, quite a good performance in uh, in lean hogs and also in uh, US gas um, and um, made a little bit of money in VIX as well. So, but you know, on net net, um, mainly losses unfortunately. Um, and yeah, bonds and equities, uh, metals uh, and FX actually all losing money um, as well, just looking at the, the sector split. So my positioning now actually, so I've, I've been said for quite a while now that my, my risk is quite low uh, and it's even lower now. So, you know, having scale back positions uh, even further on the, on the back of a, of a shock, as you'd expect Tron following to do. Um, so my, my analyzed risk now is running at around maybe a quarter, a fifth, um, of my long-term target, um, and my biggest risk now actually is in uh, the the AGS markets. So the bond market slipped to second place. Um, so I've trimmed I've trimmed my position in, in in bonds quite considerably. Although I do still have a a modest short in in US two year, um, but I'm long. Um, in fact, yeah, I've got very few positions. And actually, I could list them all 
quite quickly. No, it just, just I mean, I'm not seems going to fine, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but it does it does illustrate, you know, the, the kind of situation where uh, um, we've, we've really gone from, um, you know, we've really cut back our positions, as you'd expect, uh, given that things have moved against us. So, uh, so yeah, the not not really a huge surprise, kind of probably in line with, with most people in terms of my experience of the, the year and the few four months we've had so far. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it for sure. And of course, we know uh, now that um, the SG indices, the CTA index, the trend index had their biggest two-day loss uh, on the 10th and the 13th, 14th, whenever it was. Um, and um, so, yeah, it was uh, on an unusual uh, period of time. I think it sounds like you did pretty well. Of course, as uh, I briefly talked to Rich about last weekend, um, I think this period in particular will will certainly um, have a lot of dispersion returns, mostly driven by just the markets and the exposure uh, levels that people would have had towards fixed income. Um, and that's fine. I mean, that's how uh, that's how it should be. This week, um, after an exciting, uh, quote-unquote, uh, March uh, month, it has been a very quiet week performance-wise as far as I can tell, even though it got off to a little bit of a bang when the OPEC people decided to cut uh, the production further by, I think, 1.1 uh, million barrels per day. Um, and that was a bit of a surprise. So we have seen some decent moves in the markets um, this week, but when I was kind of briefly looking at the, the funds that I follow uh, intermonth. Looks like performance so far in, in April is is pretty flat, uh, also from the indices. And what I from what I can gather, you know, uh, there were maybe a little bit of, of uh, a challenge in some of the Japanese equity markets for trend followers, but on the other hand, commodity uh, commodities did pretty well. So anyway, it seems to have offset each other. Um, pretty well. So when I look at the numbers as of Thursday night, because of course uh, we don't have the numbers for Friday, which would have been very small change anyways because of Easter, uh, beta 50 is down fa- four basis points for the year, down less than four percent for the for sorry for the month, and down four four uh, percent for the year. Shock Gen CTA index down 14 bips uh, for the month, down 5.34 for the year, and the trend index is flat down 7.3% uh, so far this year. So nothing uh, too much. Short-term traders are down 18 basis points in April. They're down 2.29 in March, uh, sorry, for the year. And uh, equities doing well, up 7.2 for the world equity uh, markets, MSCI world uh, for the year. Uh, the bonds are up a half a percent this month and the S&P 500 index is almost up 7% for the year. Now, we'll run through a few questions. I don't think they're that long. Um, and then we'll dive into the topics that we have uh, talked about, Rob, in advance. The first one uh, is a uh, message for you. It says, even says, dear uh, Rob or Robert. It's from Ricardo. And he's just asking, when are we going, uh, when are we, he says, we, going to write a book on Python Backtester to trade equities futures for an exchange? Question mark. So Ricardo is a friend, a good friend of mine who actually lives in the same town as I do. So he he's deliberately winding me up now, uh, basically. Well, you have just finished one book, so I guess it's time. Uh, yeah, to Yeah, I know. The next he's one. like, yeah, you need to start another book. So yeah. so yeah. Um, 
the answer is is truthfully Ricardo probably never I I'm I'm a bit um I don't like the idea of writing books with code in them like about python and stuff like that um one reason being you you have to there was a few reasons actually one is that um you know programming languages and things are dynamic they change over time and that means you need to keep reissuing the book and rewriting the code in them or they get out of date um now that's great if you're a publisher that does that sort of book like Wiley for example um, they, you know, they've, they've got a lot of these books, um, but it does mean a lot of work for somebody, <laughs> and that would be me. Another reason is that um, they're they're quite quite complicated books to write. Um, I mean, the books are right pretty complicated anyway. But you know, you've got to write all the code, you've got to test it, and so on and so forth. And um, you know, and then you get lots of people kind of contacting you, asking for clarifications, and, and saying, "Oh, this won't run. This won't run." And again, that happens with with other books anyway. People will write to you and say, "Well, in this formula here, you know, what do you mean by this? What do you mean by that?" But with code, it's literally something like, "Well, I typed this in and it didn't work. What are you going to do about it?" You know. Um, and I'm I just don't feel um, that that's the kind of thing I want to do. Um, so, you know, our, our, our good friend Andreas Klanau, um, who um, you know, his, who we were talked about his uh, reissuing of his classic book on on um, managed futures recently. Um, his I think his his third book was actually a book of this kind about backtesting equities in Python. Um, and uh, I know he's had some problems with the fact that it was about a particular library that's no longer supported, and he gets lots of questions coming in, and, and, and so on and so forth. So, um, so yeah. I'm so, uh, so Ricardo, he's going to. I think the next thing he's going to do is like hire a plane to fly with a banner going past my house every every hour, with saying, you know, when are you going to write this book? He's very very keen for me to write it, because he he personally would like to read it, but but sadly, well, I think he the should no. he should write it, of course, then. Well, yes, um, exactly. Um, I, you know, I thought of another reason why you wouldn't want to do that was um, it would be uh, an interesting challenge to do the audio version of it. <laughs> quite, quite. Right. All right. Well, let's jump to a question from Bruno. Bruno writes, let me express my gratitude and admiration for your podcast and you and your roaster of impressive guests. So that would be you, Rob, and everyone else, of course. I would like to ask Rob a question on dynamic position sizing and the need for volatility forecast. One thing that isn't addressed in great detail, in my opinion, is the apparent contradiction of using historical volatility as a predictor of future market conditions when defining position size. This is a bit like the critique many people move to VAR, value at risk, which is like driving while looking in the rearview mirror. Does Rob advocate using a model of any kind to produce a volatility forecast and let this risk budget fluctuate according uh, to market conditions? Or does he see more value in having more empirical approach and using a blend of historical volatility, perhaps using different look-back periods, what would be the main reason for his choice of one paradigm and the other, um, and what would be the most important features of Rob's volatility model should he develop one? Okay, good, good question. Brian. Yeah, Thanks it is a good that. question. Yeah, um, so this is kind of one of those unspoken assumptions that that we use historic vol, but actually what we really want, of course, is future volatility, but we don't have access to that. Um, now the, the good news is that um, the the single best predictor of future volatility is actually historic volatility. Um, to be more precise, um, if I measure the volatility using standard deviation over a number of different lookbacks, in other words, so if I look at you know vol over the last few days, vol over the last few weeks, vol over the last six months or the last year, um, and then I use that to predict what volatility will be in the in the near future. Um, 
and again, I can look at a number of different holding periods for my assets, um, what I will find is that the, the single best pr predictor of future volatility, regardless of your horizon actually, is the volatility with a look back of around a month. And that's true with whether I use a simple standard deviation that just takes and equally weights all the returns from the last you know, 20, 25 business days, or whether I use, do something more sophisticated and use an exponential weighting, which is what I use myself. Um, so, and if you um, if you do a regression um, and you you, um, you which is a you know a measure of how well you know y predicts x if you like, um, you get an R squared of about zero point four, which actually is extremely good. Um, if I try and do a regression like that and try and predict correlations, I'll get an R squared of about point two. And if I try and predict means or sharp ratios, you know, <laughs> I get a very very weak R squared indeed because um, it's much harder to predict those. Um, now, you can improve that volatility model in a number of different ways. Um, so one obvious thing you can do is to use implied volatility. So um, the implied volatility of an options price is effectively, the well, it's actually mainly driven by the market's forecast of what volatility is going to be in the period up to when the option expires. But there is a caveat there, which is that options are systematically overpriced. Um, and we can earn this thing called a variance premium um, by, by selling selling gamma, as they say in the options world, and delta hedging it, will expect to earn a, um, a kind of a positive return over time, occasionally losing money if the market moves a lot. So it's a classic kind of negative skew uh, trading strategy selling gamma. Um, but, but putting that to one side, um, yeah, we can use um, implied options, um, implied vol from options data. I don't do that personally, um, although um, when I was at AHL we did do that, and I assume that they still do that, because it's a fair bit of work, because you've got to bring in the volatility and do some calculations and then back out the effect of the um, the variance um, premium. Um, there are other things you can do um, in terms of getting more and more sophisticated so that the, you know, the academic literature is littered with various um, volatility models. So you've got things like Garch, for example, which Oh, let me see if I can get this right. Um, one of the reasons, because people are wondering why both Niels and I are a bit stumbling a bit this morning, is we're actually recording a, a, quite a bit earlier than we normally do because of Niels' travel schedule, so I think we're both a bit tired. Uh, but Garch, I think science stands for Generalised Autoregressive Conditional Heteroskedasticity. The good news, Rob, is I have no, I, I wouldn't know, so I can't even <laughs> correct you here. Yes, but I know I know for sure there's at least a couple of people listening who'll know, know whether I got that right or not, but I hope they did. Um, but, but these are basically ways of kind of um, weighting and modelling the, the volatility in, in various different ways. Um, so I, I do something like that, but um, and which which the Bruno actually kind of talk, talks about as well, um, and that's that I use a mixture of a blend of a, a very slow estimate of volatility and and this one month one I've already talked about. Um, and the reason I do that is because volatility uh, is a process that is predictable in the short term and in a sort of stationary way. In other words, if vol's been high recently, it'll stay high. If it's been low recently, it'll stay low. But it also mean reverts as well at longer time frames. So, um, you know, if, if um, equity market vol is currently very high, so above, say, 40% annualized standard deviation, it's unlikely to stay that high for more than a few months. Um, so to to account for that, um, I include a, a slow, a very slow estimate of volatility that kind of pulls in my my quick moving um, estimate and um, one implication of that is which is very important for for someone who's in a sort of cta business 
because we size our positions inversely according to volatility. So if volatility is very low, we'll increase our positions dramatically and have more leverage. So if volatility is very low, we'll have a lot of leverage on and we'll be very exposed to potential market shocks. Um, and by using combining a short and a long-term estimate of volatility, that means that I won't be putting quite as much leverage on in those low vol periods and I'll be less exposed to the to the market shocks that are happening. One more thing you can do just before I you know finish that you could throw in there um, is you can include intraday data. So even though I'm running my system mainly at a daily frequency, um, one good estimate of, in, of improving vol is to to bring in just for your vol estimate some last couple of days of say hourly data and that allows you to pick up pick up early on a kind of something happening in the market that the daily returns aren't yet showing up yet in a in a big way so yeah you know the a simple one month look back of vol does a really really good job and will get you 90 percent of the way there uh, and there are all these refinements you can throw in that will, will do a slightly better job of improving your um your estimate of volatility and you know that r squared number would maybe go from 0.4 to 0.5 um, that's not necessarily going to improve your returns but it will make your distribution a little bit more stable um, um, and you know if, if you've got the time and you want to put the effort in it might be worth doing it's a kind of marginal gain i would say sure great stuff thanks very much for that uh rob all right here's a the last question or set of questions is from skip Skip writes, hello, Nils. I would like to ask Rob a few questions. The first question, and pardon the pond here, I'm going to skip because we already talked about it. Uh, it's about performance. So we already done that. Um, but the other one will be, I know that Rob is not a pure trend follower. Um, how is the overall performance of the portfolio affected? Is there any comparison when using only trend versus his other trading uh, rules, carry, mean, reversion, based on backtest, for example. So I'm not sure you may understand this better question than, than what I do and uh, where Skip is going with this. Yeah, I'm just trying to see if I've got an up-to-date report that will answer Skip's question. Um, I'm not sure I do, sadly. Uh, just bear with me. Other um, than just general terms, obviously. Yeah, no, actually, I do have an up-to-date report. So um, I think I think what Skip's asking is, you know what, um, over the last um, few months, clearly... Trend following would have suffered in March, but did other trading rules that I run, that you know, like for example, carry most famously, um, would they also have suffered, or you know, would they have provided diversification? Um, so I'm just quickly um, scrolling through a very, very long report, which actually has the performance for all my different trading rules in it. Um, so um, you know, not, I'm not yet seeing any good news. <laughs> it's fair to say, um, but just just bear I hope with me. It's not that long, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, well, it, it includes um, performance going back for various periods. So there's a year-to-date report, um, but also kind of longer timeframes as well, and it breaks it down by um, every single type of trading rule I have, um, and you know, there's a few, <laughs> to say the least. Um, so, um, so that that's why. I mean, so just just I'll just talk while that while that report's loading. Um, the you know the the reason for including lots of different training rules just to sort of take it back to basics is, of course, um, you know we would hope um, that that would provide us with diversification in the same way that adding more instruments to our portfolio um, also provides us with with um, with some diversification effect. Um, and um, yeah, it's it's not it's unfortunately I now and I have a com I now have um, the sort of spinning wheel on the computer that, that indicates that the computer is like now this report's too big I'm not, I'm not going to load anymore so um, but what I can say to you Skip is um, 
Well, a couple of things. From a kind of theoretical perspective, if I look just to look at bonds and look at carry, um, I probably would have expected um, carry to potentially have, have been in a, um, a similar um, situation to, to trend um, because the, the yield curve is actually pretty flat. I think going into the, the the crisis that happened, and actually that's one of the reasons for for you know banks being in trouble because banks like steep yield curves, right? They want to be able to essentially borrow money at the front of the yield curve from depositors for low interest rates, and then put it into um, you know long maturity uh, bonds um, and uh, mortgages and other investments like that um, with higher interest rates and, and make money. And uh, you know the um, the situation. Um, they've been in recently means they've been had trouble doing that um, and uh, people have been listening for a while will remember from Cam Harvey who we interviewed for the, um, the macro series that um, a, a flatter inverted yield curve actually is potentially a sign of bad economic times to come as well so there's something there um, but the so in theory um, you know it's quite likely that carry and bonds would also have been short and wouldn't have specifically in bonds been much help in that particular episode but the other thing i will say skip is um i'm going to in the next few weeks um do some analysis of my performance the last 12 months which i do every year for the it sort of aligns with the uk tax year which goes up to april and that analysis will include um a kind of full analysis of all the different trading rules that i run so you can you can check in on my blog and uh, maybe next time i'm on i'll talk about that topic again okay cool And then final question before we uh, dive into you, your topics uh, or our topics, I should say. If you had to pick one trading rule, uh, trend or something else, what what's kind of your... I hate this you question. You have to choose between your children here. Exactly. I was going to say exactly the same thing. It's the choose choose between your children question. But because, um, uh, you know, um, carry has, um, in the back test, carry has a, a better sharp ratio, but not as good skew as trend following and vice versa. Um, I'd probably pick trend following. I don't see how I could. I mean, there was only else. one real exactly. correct question uh, answer, I should say, on exactly. this. So I'm glad you picked the right one. Okay, yeah. cool. All right. Thanks for the questions and thanks for your kind comments, Skip. And um, let's jump into some uh, topics now. The first topic when when you raised it to me, uh, Rob, I thought, is this really interesting? I mean, uh, just being completely transparent here. But then you just gave me like 30 seconds and I thought, yeah, this is probably relevant for us to spend a couple of minutes talking about. Um, so can you reveal what this uh, mystery topic is? Well, I can. I can. So, Niels, do you know what April the 14th is this year? It's a special day. April the 14th this year. Mm. No, it's not my birthday either, in case you're wondering. Yeah. You haven't got me a present. I mean, if it's related to this topic, I kind of it guess, is. but yeah. uh, could be okay. the last trading day of something. It is, yeah. So April the 14th is the day that if you own a euro dollar future, which obviously is a US uh, interest rate future, um, based on the uh, the LIBOR rate, um, it will convert into a different kind of future. It will convert into a an SOFR future, which is Secured Overnight Financing Rate future. Um, and um, I, I think I think this is an interesting topic for a number of different reasons, actually. So um, the first is, uh, you know, as a futures trader, it's quite unusual for this to happen, right? So it's quite unusual for the the market to say, okay, that future that you own, we're going to take that away and re- replace it with a, with a different future. Um, futures do delist from time to time. Um, I mean, futures often become moribund and no one trades them anymore. Uh, and the CME or whoever decides it's just not worth the hassle of keeping them on the books, so they, they delist them. It does happen. Um, a, a recent example would be the the, the big S and P contract, um, 
which which delisted um, I think about a year, a year and a half ago. Uh, and now we've just got the the micro and the mini um, because you know everyone just switched to trading the micro or the mini. They're like, well, we don't need the big contracts anymore. And um, another example actually would be in lumber. So they changed the definition of the lumber contract, and the the old the old lumber contract stopped trading, and um, you know there's now a, a new lumber contract which is defined in a different way. But it's really unusual for a big high volume contract like the euro dollar future, which is one of the largest volume um, contracts in the world, to be replaced like this. And of course, it all ties back into to LIBOR itself. Um, LIBOR. Um, and, and, you know, this, I'm speaking from kind of quite close person experience here with this. Um, um, but, but LIBOR was, was a, a measure of interest rates based on a, a survey of banks that was done every morning. So literally in the olden days, someone had rung, rung up all these banks and said, you know, where, where can you borrow or lend for three months today? Um, and, uh, that, that survey clearly is open to potential manipulation and indeed several people have gone to jail or, and, and been prosecuted um, with that manipulation including some people I know quite well because I used to work with them uh, so I was sitting um, at the start of my career in investment bank trading I was sitting a few meters away from people who unbeknownst to me were were fixing LIBOR and have subsequently served jail time for it um, and you know this is not the place for a discussion about about whether you know that was illegal, really illegal. Um, whether the law was effectively changed and applied retrospectively, um, I've blogged about that. If, if people want to know, but yeah, I think it's it's quite a, it's you know to me this is one of these once in a lifetime things. I don't think that you know <laughs> this is going to happen uh, again. In in so um, so yeah, it feels like quite a, a compelling thing. So yeah, if you happen to own any euro dollar futures, then something weird and magical is going to happen to them. And at a, a more kind of pragmatic level. You know, you're, you're some, if you're like me and your system's fully automated, a lot of things are probably going to break. <laughs> so, just be aware of that. Um, one one thing, for example, that will happen is the price will actually jump by I think it's twenty six basis points off the top of my head. But basically, the, the 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 because these things are not quite the same thing. So one one is one is a secured rate, one is a, an unsecured rate. The S in SOFR stands for secured. Um, so there's going to be a difference in price, and there's a difference in the the, the credit. And um, you know, SFR, SOFR is actually based on real market trades rather than on a survey, which is of course the reason why they're replacing LIBOR. Um, yeah, the whole the whole LIBOR saga has been been a very long and 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 turgid one. And um, you know, I think the the issues of LIBOR potentially being fixed were first raised somewhere in sort of late 2007, if my memory is correct. So it's been 16 years to get to this point. Um, but yeah, it feels like the, you know, uh, an important day that's worth marking. And yes, it's a bit nerdy and it's a bit kind of fixed income nerdy. But, um, you know, to me personally, it means quite a lot. So I would have felt felt bad if I hadn't mentioned it. No, I'm glad you did. Absolutely. It was not on my radar per se, except that I've seen, obviously, that we also stopped trading euro dollar a while back. But anyways, now um, you wrote a blog post about another topic, which may on the surface seem uh, also a little bit nerdy, but you said you, you, you assured me that it's not. So let's, let's run with that. And it's about um, the wonderful topic of estimating standard deviation. Which so, we've touched already. So yes. Right, exactly. So yeah. Uh, yeah, so actually, this is this is a bit less. This is actually about a kind of either or question. So, and actually, this is something that happens a lot because often you'll see in the the headlines of the news they'll, they'll say, "Oh, 
you know, the, the S&P dropped by 100 points today, you know. And, and um, actually, that's one of my, the things I really hate seeing in newspaper headlines, because unless you, you have in your head a mental model of what 100 points means, you know, what, you know it's completely meaningless, right? So um, what people really ought to do is convert that into percentage and say, oh, you know, well, the, the, the S&P dropped by um, 2.5% today, you know. Um, which you need, and you think, oh, that's that's a kind of mm, that's a big that's not a massive loss, is it? It's kind of a bad day, but it's not a terrible day. Um, but but you know, but obviously, in the newspaper, you know, the, the S and P dropped a hundred whole points today. You know, mentally, you're thinking, wow, that sounds like a lot. Um, but uh, but really, it's it's really not. Um, so um, and you know, they never do that with with something that has a small you know small dollar on it. So they would never say, oh yeah. Um, the, the price of this went up by, you know, just this. They, they would report the percentage to make it seem bigger. I guess that's what being a journalist is all about, sadly, grabbing headlines. Um, so I, I have, I personally prefer often when looking and thinking about, you know, price changes to do them in percentages, right? Because it's, you know, I mean, it's same when I'm reporting my PL to you guys every week and I, I said, oh, I'm down, you know, just under 3% for the year. I didn't say, oh, I'm down. Um, you know, fifty million. Um, <laughs> fifty million. I wish. I wish deals. <laughs> yes, I wish. I don't think so. Um, yeah, a lot less than that. But it wouldn't mean anything if I reported you a dollar amount. It wouldn't. It wouldn't mean anything, right? So, um, so, so it's kind of um, in terms of thinking about price changes. I think percentages are, are are important. And in terms of like reporting standard deviations, so saying you know, oh yeah, my my. St- so, so do you, you know, my long my long term standard deviation target is twenty five percent a year, um, you know, and and that would translate on the S and P to you know a thousand points or something, you know. But um, actually, in terms of calculating standard deviation, there are actually good reasons why you should not use the percentages. So when you're actually sitting down and, and saying, right, I'm going to get say the last you know twenty five thirty days of of returns. And I'm going to put that into a calculation to estimate what my risk should be, which is what we were talking about earlier. You shouldn't use percentage standard deviations. And there's a few reasons why not. Okay, so the first is that prices can actually sometimes go negative. We've seen that in the last, well, actually almost exactly three years ago. Um, the, the price of um, front crude oil went negative. Um, and clearly it's nonsensical to to divide something by a negative number because uh, you know, unless you do something about it, you're going to end up with a with a negative number for your standard deviation, which doesn't make any sense. The other the the issue isn't so much the going negative; it's when things get really close to zero. So, if you imagine something like crude oil, which you know three years ago was probably moving about five, say, an average of five or ten dollars a day. Five, you know, ten dollars divided by fifty dollars is you know twenty uh, percent. But but ten ten dollars divided by one dollar is a thousand percent. So what what you'll see happen is, is if you're using percentage standard deviations, if a price starts to go towards zero, then the, the the percentage returns will get bigger and bigger and bigger. Even though in reality the market volatility is still the same, the the price is still you know there's nothing. It's not like the market regimes change. We just end up with these ridiculously huge return numbers. You might say, well, you know, Rob, how often do prices really go negative? I mean, you can only think of one example the last three years. Um, but because of the way that um, most people build their um, futures um, backtesting systems, um, we do this thing called uh, generating a back-adjusted price, which means essentially we join together the prices of lots of different contracts that have traded through history. 
Um, if you do that with a, um, a contract that, that has a, a positive carry, like, for example, bonds, as we've discussed, normally you earn a positive carry on bonds, what you'll find is that the adjusted price as you go back into history gets lower and lower and lower, and at some point quite possibly will turn negative. Um, so in my, if I pull up the price of um, US 10-year bonds um, in my system, um, it's going to go from you know, maybe about 100 now to, you know, and about 30 years ago it'll be zero. And before that it'll be negative. Um, so that this this issue um, with with um, calculating percentages on very, very small numbers will, will you know, be another issue. So what will happen is my, my standard deviation estimates, even if nothing's really happened to the market, will get bigger and bigger and bigger as that price approaches zero. And then they'll get smaller and smaller again. So they'll just be really strange numbers. And um, there is a way of getting around that, which is to use the the actual price of the contract as it was trading then, rather than the back adjusted price as the the denominator in your um, your, your calculation. But um, you know, which which I prefer to do. But again, that won't get you away from the issue of things going to zero. And the final reason for doing this, um, which may not be that obvious, is actually it is the the price change that you care about in terms of actually scaling your positions because. Um, you know, if, if you think about kind of a basic idea of how you're scaling your positions, you know, you, let's say you, you want to take a million a million dollars of risk in something. Well, you want to know what the dollar risk is of trading that thing. And that's going to be equal to the, the standard deviation measured in price terms multiplied by the value of each contract. You know, so for, for euro dollars, as we've been discussing, that would be $2,500 a point. For 10-year futures, it would be $1,000 a point and so on. So yeah, it is a bit of a nerdy and a geeky conversation, but but it, it's an example of a of something that's kind of going on under the hood of a, a lot of systems that people may not properly appreciate, um, and it's an example of, of of when if if market conditions change and your your system's not sufficiently robust. So for example, if you were using percentage standard deviations, um, and um, you know a price suddenly went negative, and your your whole system would just go well, whoa, hang on a second, you know. Uh, the best thing that would happen is that it would just, you know, throw an exception and, and um, crash. Um, the worst thing that would happen is that it will just carry on but produce really weird results, um, you know, which um, you wouldn't necessarily pick up on straight away. So, um, you know, th- this business isn't that complicated, but it really helps sometimes to have a real focus on, a, a, on attention to detail on, on some of the small things going on. So, so again, it may seem a bit mer- nerdy, it may seem a bit uninteresting, but it, I think it's something that, that people should be aware of. Well, we're going to shift gear now and we're going to pull some punches because there was an article called Trend Following, Rolling with the Punches. Uh, from our friends over at Man AHL that, yeah, again on the topic of trend following naturally, but also uh, in relationship to um, what we've just been through and, and, and crisis periods. I know you had a quick chance to uh, to uh, to look it through. Um, what were your main takeaways, uh, Rob, from the article? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting article. Um, so, you know, I think, I think the important caveat is that these pieces are written, you know, by kind of uh, sales side of the business really um, they're, not, they're not kind of su- necessarily super serious pieces of research and I think you should we should always have in mind that that man although they're, they're a great firm and, and as I often say when people you know well they paid for my house so I kind of have a, a sort of a, a legacy of appreciation towards them um, but 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 um, you know they're the high quality pieces but we should always bear in mind that the motivation is to 
like houses to a degree, is to say, well, trend following is is good. Um, and when we have these periods like March, um, we know um, you know ba- basically don't panic. You know that that's that's the message and that's the motivation, and, and that should always be borne in mind. But having said that, as I said, it's a pretty high quality piece. So um, you know they they say, well. You know what actually happened? Well, as we've discussed, uh, SVB Silicon Valley Bank happened, uh, and then UBS Credit Suisse, and uh, and um, you know another U.S. bank as well. Um, U.S. two-year Treasury yields specifically moved by the the more, most they've moved since Black Monday, October '87. Um, and um, but it wasn't just that. There's quite a few markets that saw reversals in in their prices. Um, so the you know the U.S. Treasuries were the most dramatic, but um, you know, quite a few equity markets also showed sharp reversals. Some FX markets showed sharp reversals. Even that gas actually showed a sharp reversal. Um, so it was it wasn't just the you know the that single market that caused those sharp losses. It was because a lot of things switched direction on the same day. Um, because obviously, as trend followers, we normally try and be diversified, and you know we wouldn't have had that big an exposure to just just one U.S. fixed income market necessarily. Um, but then they said, "Well, okay, that that's kind of the bad news. But but can we kind of look at history and and, and you know have an opinion about generally how trend following behaves around these kind of crisis periods when we see sharp reversals?" And they've they've taken um, a bunch of historic periods when you know the, these reversals happen. So, um, for example, uh, July two thousand and seven was was one. November two thousand and one was another. And they looked at the the um, the performance in in three periods. So before the re- the reversal, the reversal itself, and then after the reversal. And so the, the the first thing to say is, well, you know, March was bad, but actually, interesting, March 07 was worse because you know the stock market had been going up, and then the kind of news about the credit crisis, initial credit crisis, you start to filter in, uh, and things reverse quite sharply. Um, so that kind of puts it in a historical context. Um, but the other thing that, that they do is say, well, you know what, if we take an average of all these periods uh, in which trend following saw a sharp reversal, how does trend following do after that? Um, and the good news is that on average, um, it actually um, pretty much makes up the reversal and if, if anything, within 12 months actually has a small profit. Um, so, you know, it does seem that after a sharp reversal, there is a kind of you know, technical term, negative autocorrelation returns or less technically a, a bounce back in, in improvement. Now, of course, we should say that this hasn't always happened. So, for example, in, in February 2018, um, or in the 12 months following February 2018, it basically went sideways for 12 months. It didn't didn't recover any of its its previous performance. Um, so, the, you know, that that's an average. Um, so, yeah, it, it's quite a it's quite an interesting um, piece. And, um, you know, with the usual caveats that, you know, yeah, it's a bit of a sales piece. It has a motivation to encourage people to, to look into trend following. But, but you know, generally speaking, um, I'm not I'm of the view that, you know, the best they always say, well, when's the best time to buy stocks? And the answer is, well, if you believe stocks are going to go up in the long run, the answer is today, you know, um, trying to time your your um you know, going trying to get out of stocks after they've done badly, or getting into them when they've done well, uh, unless you you know you're running some kind of systematic trend following model on stocks. There is is a bad is a bad idea. Similarly, you know, um, when you know if you're going to ha- have an investment in a, in a in a risk premium type strategy like trend following, um, I believe you should try and stay exposed to that um, as much as you can, and not not panic and get out when things have, have done gone badly. Um, I'm not sure that there's enough evidence in this article to say that the best time to get into trend following is now because the market's suffered a reversal and after reversal, things are always going to come back. I'm not sure 
you know that they they kind of spin that tale but but uh, i think the message is if you are invested in, in in trend following that there's no reason why you should be particularly concerned about you know about further poor performance from here but um but yeah you know it, it is what it, it is that's what it is and of course there's absolutely no nothing wrong with being a little bit biased toward trend following on this particular podcast i would say and uh, it reminds me of a quote that our founder bill dunn uh, would say and that is the the best time to invest in trend following is at the bottom of a drawdown the second best is today all righty well of course we talk about trend following in, in terms of uh, during a crisis period but that kind of nicely leads into the another topic which was an article that was published in uh, i think in bloomberg uh, this week and of course ideally a lot of people really want to have protection of their portfolio ideally protection that doesn't cost them anything and we can certainly think of one strategy that um, does that over time um, but of course, when we talk about tail hedge and we talk about protection, there's one particular individual that often um, is associated with some strong opinions, um, both his own and of others. Uh, and that is, of course, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, um, who um, is the author of uh, a number of uh, important books, I guess. And also, he's an advisor to a firm, I guess you would call them a hedge fund, called Universa. And Universa made some headlines back in 2020 uh, because of the way they quoted their returns during COVID. You know, thousands of percent they um, quoted that they had made. And I think there was a lot of discussion uh, on social media about the way that they uh, approached this. And now uh, there is, again, that this article came up. And I kind of forget the details of, of the article. I have to say there's just so many things going on right now. So, But I did read it. Um, and I did listen to a podcast actually with uh, Nassim Taleb this week. Uh, you know, he did come across much more mellow, I have to say. Not very, uh, uh, maybe it was just because the the, the two hosts uh, were um, more in agreement with him, I guess, than than in disagreement. Um, but it is, in, in, it is an interesting topic, of course. Uh, I only, I know you only had a few uh, minutes to kind of glaze over the the article, but this thing about tail hedge, this thing about you know um, how to quote your returns without them being kind of eye catching and controversial, kind of goes a little bit to this thing you talked about before. With small denominators can lead to very yeah, high. Yeah, I mean numbers. this is. This is quite nerdy as well, right? So this is this well. Let's make it. Let's try and make it not too nerdy because I think yeah. there's another controversial topic coming up after yeah, this yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think actually I'm I'm, I'm going to listen to that um, podcast you mentioned because um, I, I I don't listen obviously never listen to rival podcasts, Niels, unless you give me permission to. Um, but but I think one thing about Nassim Taleb and indeed like a lot of people, um, I mostly see him on Twitter, where of course he comes across as this very kind of <laughs> you know aggressive personality. Um, and in real life, uh, I, I've never met him, but I have met people who have met him, if that makes sense. So I've got a kind of second degree connection to Nassim Taleb. They say he's, you know, much nicer in real life as, and then Twitter. And that's true probably of nearly everyone, including me, I would say. Um, so um, I, I hopefully come across like, even on this podcast as much nicer than on Twitter, because in Twitter, of course, you know, <laughs> sometimes you you haven't got time to, to be nice. You know, you just have to say what you got to say. And I think that's an accepted part of the medium. Um, yeah, so tail hedging um, is is a you know it's it's a fascinating topic, um, and um, there are there are better people than me to talk about the mechanics of tail hedging and, and how you do it. But the basic idea is this: um, that you're essentially buying insurance against a market downturn without it costing you a net amount of money. 
So if, and we talked about this already, if you systematically buy options um, and Delta hedge them, um, you will systematically lose money because of this thing called the, um, the you know, the, the volatility premium. Um, essentially, um, the market makes you pay for insurance, okay? Um, and that cost um, gets worse if you buy massively out-of-the-money options um, because of this thing called Smile. So basically, um, post-October 87, um, the market has said there's, there's a possibility of this you know, massive outside move happening, and therefore we're going to charge you a lot more money for, say, you know, 20 delta out-of-the-money um, put options, which which would be the sort of thing you'd use to insure against a, a market catastrophe. And the other thing is that the, the, the bid-ask spreads on those out-of-the-money options tend to be quite wide as well. So, you know, that combined with the, the, the volatility smile means it's a very expensive way of protecting yourself. Um, but it is the only sure way of protecting yourself. So, you know, trend falling empirically has protected you against um, certain kinds of market crashes, but not always, right? You know, so it wasn't much help in March. It wasn't much help in March 20, 2020 either. But it was it was a big help um, last year, um, you know, over the course of the year when, when the classic 60-40 portfolio got absolutely smashed and trend falling did very well. But um, it's not a guarantee that, of, of protection. So it's not really a true you know, crisis alpha insurance product, shall we say. The only true crisis alpha insurance product is, well, either keeping all your money in cash, which in which case inflation will stuff you, or, or yes, buying these out of the money options that are very expensive. Now, what tail hedging funds uh, try and do is to make the, is to, to do that sort of insurance buying in a more selective way. Um, and and um, without going into details, because apart from anything else, I'm not an expert, um, what they're trying to do is buy insurance when it's relatively cheap and buy certain kinds of insurance that's cheaper than others um, and, and potentially pay for their insurance by um, you know, selling other options that are rich and, and all these kinds of tricks. And that, again, that means they will never be a perfect hedge, but it means if they, if they do their job well, they can still be a hedge against crashes um, without... Um, you know, costing you a net amount of money in the long run and potentially even making you money in the long run. So let, let's switch away from the specifics and just think of, a, of, an, of an analogy which most people may be more comfortable with. So let's say you want to insure your house, okay? Um, so let's say your house is worth, I don't know, half a million euros. Um, and the insurance company says to you, okay, we're going to insure your house for, I don't know, 500 euros a year, which is... Um, 0.1% or 10 basis points of the value of the house. And on average, the insurance policy is insurance companies kind of making profits and stuff on average when, you know, you'd expect over the lifetime of that, that house insurance that they would make money. So you might be paying 500 euros a year um, over, say, 20 years of ownership, which adds up to 10,000 euros, I think. And you make maybe one claim for something happens to the house you make one claim for five thousand euros so you're a net loser of five thousand euros on that that's basically what will happen if you're a naive tail hedger who just buys out of the money options that that's essentially what's happening um, you're going to lose money in the in the long run on that deal <coughs> now let's suppose that you you manage to find a tail hedging manager or you know in this in this analogy an insurance company that's hap that's not very good <laughs> so the insur you know be an insurance company that's not very good or maybe you're a really smart person who really knows how to buy a really cheap insurance policy um, and um, you know and, and you know so you're the equivalent of a smart tail hedger 
Um, so you're paying your 500 euros a year in premium, but instead of getting uh, 5,000 backing claims, you actually get 12,000 backing claims. Okay, so you're making you make a 2,000 euro profit over the life of your policy. Um, over 20 years, um, that's uh, 100 euros a year of, of, of gain, effectively. Now, Niels, the question is this. This is the question the article arises. That 2,000 euros in profit, and this comes back to what we were talking about earlier, what is that as a percentage? Yeah, that's the question. Yeah. So you, are you going to try and answer? or? <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave you to do all the it's answering. It's too early. Today, it's too early for 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 both of us. Um, I'm I'm lining up these cues, and Niels is trying to keep his his eyes open. Okay, so there's there's two ways of thinking about this, right? So one way to say, well, my house is worth half a million euros. That two thousand euros of profit is I should divide that two thousand divided by five hundred thousand, um, which is obviously going to give me zero point two five percent. I think uh, something like that. <laughs> it's going to give me. It's going to give me a small number, right? A small, a small percentage number. But another way of thinking about this is to say, well, actually, you, you know, your ten thousand euros of premium, you should divide by that, so that you've made two thousand euros profit on ten thousand euros of premium. So you've actually made twenty percent profit. Or you could even say, well, it, you know, on the money you've paid in this year, the five hundred euros you've paid in this year, you've made, you know, twelve thousand back. So you, you could divide. You say you could say it's twelve thousand divided by five hundred, which obviously is going to be you know a big four figure percentage return, which looks amazing. Now it's not going to be too difficult to guess given the choice which of these three options you would quote. Right, you're obviously going to quote. You're not going to say, well, yeah, well we make our clients you know zero point two five percent a year because they'll go, oh, okay, <laughs> that's not really particularly impressive. Um, but if you say, oh, we make our clients, you know, 11,000% a year or some other big number, then then they're going to be like, well, that's incredible. And and that's obviously going to be in the news. It's going to be on Bloomberg and people are going to be very impressed by it. The question is whether that's really a valid number or not. And um, it's it's a very difficult one because these tail protect funds, they're very, they're, although we call them hedge funds, they're very different from a normal hedge fund. Um, because, you know, with a normal hedge fund, you, you hand over your investment and you say, right, you know, and the gains and losses come, and you, it's quite easy to say what the percentage gains and losses are. With these tail protect funds, what you do is you hand over your premium, you hand over your insurance premium, um, and they they do what they do. And then if if you make an outsized gain, then obviously that that outs and you, you hand over your premium, but you also say you have a bigger amount of money, which is the amount you're insuring, right? Um, and that's the five hundred thousand euros of value of your house. And um, you know, they they. Um, they don't have kind of control of the full 500,000. So they say, well, we're not going to use that as our denominator in our percentage calculation. We're going to use the premium. Um, and that's that's where these these big numbers come from. Um, so, you know, in in a way, what they're doing is is kind of correct in one sense of the word because, there's, you know, except maybe in an accounting sense of the word when there's perhaps one right way of doing this and, and if you know a good which accountant. Seems, which seems important. Uh, yeah, well, well, yeah, but we all know, a, you know, a good accountant can, will say to you, well, what would you like the number to be? You know, <laughs> so, um, and, but in terms of tax and stuff like that, you know, I guess there's an important number to, to come in there. Um, but but actually, um, in terms of kind of economic value, you know, what, you know, I think these guys should be, you know, that. Quoting these big numbers is unnecessary. Any tail protect fund that makes money in the long run should be proud of themselves because you know that 
it's not an easy thing to do. Um, they're fighting against this variance premium. They're providing insurance against market crashes. Um, and, um, you know, I think I think they, they should be more honest and say, well, you know, yeah, um, we, we we cost you money in insurance, but in the long run, you'll get it back in, and some more. And it's not a lot more, but it net net it pays you off. And the important thing is that that kind of um, the important thing to say here is that we shouldn't really be judging these funds on the returns anyway. We should be judging them on the package of returns they produce when combined with a portfolio with a long only portfolio, right? Because that's the reason you're buying them. You're not you're not buying a tail protect fund as your only investment. You know, you, because that's a pretty rubbish investment, right? Where you pay out money year after year after year, and every now and then this huge money comes back into your account. Most people, you know, don't want that sort of return profile. You're buying it as insurance to hold with another asset. Um, you know, so what they really should be doing is saying, well, and, and this is kind of what the the CTA industry tends to do as well, because um, in isolation, you know, a CTA performance might not look that great. But combined with 6040, with the diversification power you get, all of a sudden it looks really good. Um, and that's the marketing these guys should be doing as well. They should be saying, well, you know, this is your equity line. Okay, now what happens if we add tail protect? This is your equity line. And, the, you know, the drawdowns are much reduced and the overall return is is unchanged. But brilliant. Yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Sure. They don't need to, to do this headline-grabbing stuff of quoting return in thousands of percent. I think it's um, it's it's unnecessary, frankly. Thank you for that. Uh, now we we had two more topics um, that we had uh, discussed. Luckily, we only have room for one in terms of time. Even more stroke of luck, we don't have much time. But the topic, speaking about headline grabbing um, content, is something you came up with called reasons not to trend follow. Well, and I can hardly say the word, so it's very hard for me to. <laughs> to express those that sentiment. Uh, but Rob, as always, I'm sure there is um, a very good reason why you would even consider bringing this up um, <laughs> as a topic. So, uh, And I have no idea where we're going to go with this. Um, so uh, let's spend, uh, you know, spend a few minutes on, on this as our final topic for today, um, because of course... I'm sure there's a good reason for it. Well, the one one reason is just to make the podcast more interesting, Neil, is because you know week, week after week you, we, you kind of so you're doing people... a universal. You're coming up with come headline grabbing exactly. stuff. Well, yeah, to, exactly, okay. exactly. I like, well, I like your thinking. Sure. Yeah. Well, week let's after do... week, you know, people yeah. tune in and listen to people agreeing with each other. So yeah. let, let's. Okay. I feel like it's we should put the other side of the story in. You know. I think we should. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, reasons not to trend follow. Okay. Here we go. Controversial. Here we go. Yeah. Controversial. Um, so I guess the main reason you wouldn't necessarily do trend following is that you just don't believe in it. Okay. You don't you don't believe that um, you know, there's there's a you know I think one thing that trend following lacks personally is a, a single compelling narrative as to why it works. We've got lots of theories. Um, I've got my my own personal favourite theories around things like um, behavioural biases um, and prospect theory, and and you can you can Google all this stuff if you're interested, and loss aversion and so on and so forth. Um, other people have theories around the um, you know when information comes in, have that people are slow to react and underreact to information and that produces trends. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, um, and this is true of a lot of kind of um, so-called risk premium type strategies. So the same is true to, for things like you know equity value. Same is true of carry. Um, you know, there's not there's not a reason why this should work. You know, 
um, and in in the absence of a of a of a of obvious single compelling reason as to why something should work, you're kind of left with empirical evidence. Um, and imp- as we've discussed right at the start, that's backward looking. Um, and um, something something appearing to work in the past doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work in the future for a number of different reasons. You know, it could be that that uh, your back test is overfitted, for example. Um, it could be that you've forgotten to take something into account like, and this isn't so important for trading costs, but, you know, things like um, cost, trading costs, for example, or, you know, survivorship bias and all these these problems you get with back tests. Um, but the most obvious reason why something could have worked in the past and not the future is that things change. So, you know, if, if it is a behavioral-based narrative, um, you could argue that as more and more, um, you know, investors use systematic methods or indeed are replaced by computers entirely, or maybe people will just learn not not to have these biases anymore. Um, so yeah, that that's the first potential reason. So Niels, I think the way we should do this this section is I'm going to say these reasons, and I think you should be the, the defender of of trend following and and tell me wh- why I'm wrong on each of these points. I think I might have a slightly different, a little surprise for you coming up, Rob. So okay, let's continue a little while longer. All right, okay. Shall okay. I? I'll bring up I'll bring up my next point. Don't shall I? Okay. Yeah. Is the surprise, Niels, that you're you're secretly not a trend follower, and this whole time you've been like a sleep a Soviet <laughs> sleeper agent waiting to? <laughs> I think I can reveal that's not the case. Okay, but, that's uh, fine. Yeah. Okay, the second reason why you wouldn't necessarily invest in trend following is on a standalone basis. Actually, it's not that compelling an investment, and we kind of briefly talked about that. So, um, you know, it's not the the kind of sharp ratio one one and a half two that you can get in in certain other um, types of strategy. And one of the reasons for that is those other strategies have other unpleasant attributes in terms of risks. So, for example, they're, they're solidly negative skew strategies. So option selling, for example, can be a very a very good strategy looked at in terms of sharp ratio, but it has really ugly sharp drawdowns because of that negative skew profile. Um, so so with trend following, you're, you're kind of, to an extent, paying off some of your return to get um, some positive skew and it's just a question of how much you value that positive skew and um you know you you could also you, you know the you can also say well it does well when combined with 60 40 because it provides diversification but again it's it's this is an, a, a kind of weak empirical result rather than a, a mathematical certainty like tail hedging okay so it's not guaranteed that you'll make money in a market crisis with trend following whereas that as is guaranteed with a, with a a tail hedge strategy although as I said, a pure tail hedge strategy will cost you money so it, a lot of it depends on your your preferences around sharp around skew around tail protection you know, so trend following kind of sits in the middle on these things. So if you really want tail protection, trend following is probably not for you. You should buy a tail protection fund, or just sell it, or just buy out the money puts. Um, if you really want, you know, positive skew, then again there are other assets, there are other types of investments. Like for example, buying buying um, out the money puts again is a very positive um, skewed strategy. Um, if you really want good solid sharp high sharp ratio returns then you're better off probably with a negative skewed strategy that has a high sharp ratio but in a really ugly sharp drawdowns trend falling kind of sits in the middle of these so um it you know it come, comes down to preferences really the other thing about trend following is on an individual asset basis it really is rubbish okay it's it's got very low sharps on an individual asset basis 
And it's only when you diversify across a number of different instruments that you really get the the benefit and the really you know the sharp sort of shoots up to the level where it becomes a, a sort of attractive investment in its own right. And so you know if if you want to do your own trend following, and if you haven't got a massive account, and we talked about this before, then trend following is probably not for you as an individual investor. So that means you're stuck with with things like, for example, trading doing it but with just single equities and maybe not being able to short you know so you'll still get some of the benefits but but it but um you know you're, lo- you're losing a lot of it because you haven't got the diversification across asset classes you can't short you can't benefit from markets going down um or alternatively you can invest in a fund um and you know there are you know use its funds so there are kind of retail friendly funds that do this stuff for small um account sizes um but um you know they, they've got fees um which it means you'll be net net a loser compared to if you could do it yourself, of course. Okay, I've got. Are one there more. any more left? One. More. <laughs> I mean, one more. I could I could go on all day, Neil. There are so many. I'm reasons sure you. Can. I hope you can't. Try. But anyway, no, let's can't, do no. one more. I've only got one more left. Okay, I've only fair got enough. One more left. Okay. Trend following is hard. Okay, it's really it's it's a very difficult strategy to to stick to with the, the discipline that's required. Um, it's, uh, it's, unless you run it on an automated way, like I do, um, because you've got you've got to sit there and take all those small losses, and and then when the big win comes, kind of hold on to the position and, and not close it early and take that that kind of early profit. So, it's a it's a very emotionally um, hard strategy to run, um, and that this of course is again you know why i think it'll work because why you know this this is inconsistent with my first point because you know the harder it is the fewer people are going to be able to do it um and it is interesting actually that the, the kind of size of the cta industry which isn't exactly the same as trend following um but but as a percentage of kind of total hedge fund assets has remained at about the same level for probably 25 years um you know um, I think that's a really interesting um, result. It does indicate there's kind of a ceiling on the level of how much money people are willing to put into this strategy, or how, how you know how many people that are out there are willing to put money into this strategy. Um, so you know, it's it's um, this isn't a reason not to do trend following, but it's a reason why you maybe shouldn't do trend following, which is that it's really really difficult. Um, and if you you know you can especially if you're going to trade manually, you need to be sure that you can cope with the kind of psychological knockbacks that that come with it. Okay, that's the case for the the case for the prosecution, Niels. Exactly, and of course we uh, we we already now have the title for this episode. I'm sure, and that's <laughs> something like "Why not to trend follow?" And yeah. people will think that we mistyped it in the. That'll generate a few uh, clicks. In, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. No, you know, I think your list is 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 fair. Not all of it. I uh, I mean, I certainly uh, don't agree with uh, all of it. And before I reveal my little surprise, I will say probably the one I disagree with the most is this thing about the low sharp, because as we know, we're having a low sharp because a lot of the volatility comes to the upside. So low sharp in itself is obviously for a single line item uh, less meaningful. But that's not why we are here today, right now. We, I just said, because I thought when I heard your topic the other day and I thought, what the hell is he talking about here? There was only one thing I could do, and that was to go to ChatGPT and type, give me five reasons or give me any reasons why not to trend follow. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, so of course, you probably did the same because ChatGPT and you tend to agree a lot. So let me reveal what what our our little AI friend um, thought about it. Of course, it's very diplomatic. It's very well-trained. 
While systematic trend following can be a valuable investment strategy for many investors, there are maybe several reasons why some in, some investors may choose not to allocate a portion of their portfolio to this strategy. Here are five potential reasons. Okay. So the first one, they it, it lists as risk tolerance. It says it can be highly volatile and may not be appropriate for investors with a low risk tolerance seeking stable returns. I think that's a fair point, actually. And, um, you know, good good on you, Jet DBT, GPT. The other one I didn't kind of agree with, it, it, it headlines it as diversification. And it talks about while systematic trend following can offer diversification benefits to a portfolio, it may not be the most effective way to achieve diversification depending on an investor's existing portfolio consumption. I guess, or composition, I guess that's true. Um, although I will say it does seem to have a pretty good diversifying effect on most portfolios. But fair enough, we'll we'll let that slide. Then something you also mentioned, and I think it is important, should be mentioned, is fees that some systematic trend-following programs can be expensive with high management fees and trading costs, which may reduce their attractiveness to investors who focuses on minimizing expenses. Can't really argue with that because, of course, you should always be concerned about fees and you should never invest in a fund that has excessive fees anyways, regardless of what it is doing. Fourth reason um, is investor preference, it lists. Some investors may prefer other investment strategies, such as buy and hold or value investing, or may have ethical or personal reasons for avoiding certain types of investment. Okay, you can't really argue with that either um, as such. Um, and then the one thing where you uh, certainly agreed, uh, it was your first point, uh, it's number five on, on the chat GPT list, and that is just lack of conviction that some investors may not fully be convinced of its effectiveness and benefits uh, and may prefer to ask, to allocate their assets to other types of investment strategies that they perceive to be more reliable or better aligned with their investment goals. So, you know, I think I think you were kind of in agreement um, with I, I, our little AI friend. Well, I, I one thing I say, listen to that list. Frankly, that that that's a very generic list of points you can make about any investment strategy. So I, I, I'm, and I'm not sure whether that reflects badly on me or well on ChatGPT. But I, <laughs> I feel like, you know, if this is a competition between me and ChatGPT, I really hope that you'll say I, it's clear from my answers that I know a hell of a lot more about trend following than ChatGPT does, which is just trotted out some generic I think nonsense. we can. I think we can say that is Thank affirmative. Because yes. I'm, I'm now I starting to get very concerned about, about my position on this podcast, Niels, I'll be honest with you. Well, you know, after you brought up this topic about why not to trend follow, maybe you should be a little bit concerned. But there <laughs> we are, Rob. <laughs> Anyways, um, you'll be back in a few weeks and I'm sure there will be no talk about why not to trend follow. In fact, I'm Certainly sure there not. will be lots of good topics as usual, lots of education, lots of value. And that's why you are indeed very popular every time you you come on. So um, with that, uh, Rob, and thanks for the flexibility, because as you rightly say, I'm about to jump on a plane uh, to Asia. So uh, I appreciate you coming on early today. And I appreciate everyone listening to our conversation today. If you enjoy them, please go to uh, toptradersonplug.com forward slash review. Uh, if you don't know already how to leave a rating and review on any of the podcast platforms, because they do really help. 
Uh, you can, of course, send questions to info at toptradersonplot.com. You might even start thinking about questions for Rob in a few weeks. And next week, I am joined by Andrew, who was meant to come last week, but unfortunately uh, couldn't make it. So this will be an interesting conversation. There's been quite a few articles out about replication of CTAs, managed futures. Uh, Rich and I talked last week about uh, whether there was a decoupling between um, what Andrew is doing in his fund replication of the Shokgen CTA index and the CTA index itself. We'll hear his opinions uh, we can talk about flows, how investors are reacting, and so on and so forth. So lots of great and interesting topics coming up uh, next week, provided, of course, I can get the technology to work all the way out from Asia, which I'm sure will not be a problem. Anyways, thank you so much for listening from Rob and me. Uh, we look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.